0: If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to begin at verse 12 today. And as you're finding your spot, I might, just, I might just locate us in our text or where we are in the book of Isaiah. Last week, we heard some of the most famous uh, words from Isaiah. And that's saying something because Isaiah is, is basically just a chain of the greatest hits. We can't go through Isaiah, read a chapter or two without reading something that we regularly sing in a beautiful song or hymn. And we heard the words from Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort, my people. Such sweet words. And we saw actually last week that some of the sweetness of that word, those words are not just the first two words, comfort, comfort, but that those last two words were also part of the sweet comfort. He calls them his people. We just sang about that. I am his and he is mine. That they belong to the Lord. This is supposed to be a comfort to them. Now, why was it that the people of Israel needed to, be, needed to receive these words of comfort? Well, we saw last week that this, these are actually words spoken to them that were actually supposed to follow them into exile. They're going to go into exile And they're going to need these words of comfort. And they're they're told to remember these words of comfort are going to endure forever. They are, in fact, going to last longer than your exile. And they needed to hear these things. They were going into exile. They're going into a land that hated them. Into a land ruled by a people who hated their God. A land that is filled with idols. A land that hated the Lord their God. And, in fact, which hated them. And so they needed to hear these words of comfort. You remember that comfort we saw last week, comfort needs content. It's not there, there, everything's going to be okay. Why should, why is everything going to be okay? And what does it mean that everything's going to be okay? And they were reminded in that comfort, the content of that comfort was that they had a good shepherd who was fierce, all powerful, who will judge the living and the dead who reigns over all things, and he will give people their just deserts. He will give them the justice that they deserve. They have a fierce shepherd, but also, what, other, what else characterized this shepherd of theirs? He was a tender shepherd. He's a tender shepherd to his sheep. A tender shepherd. And so he continues, actually, this is a continuation of this comfort. You might even say that this is God calling calling a public assembly, almost like a, a legal assembly. It, it has a couple of places in 40 verse 1 and, and in verse 21. It has this feeling of some sort of a legal court case or some international tribunal where the nations are called together and evidence is brought forward and we're just going to give evidence of these things. And God is giving evidence and for, for Israel's ability to have confidence in him. And dear friends, my confidence is that we all need such a uh, a reminder as well. Regularly, every week we get together, you are told some very amazing comforts and promises of God. You are told to hope in him and to trust in him. And this passage and many others in scripture remind us that the faith that we are to heaven, God, is not blind faith. It is a faith that he is jealous to give reasons for. He is eager to give public evidence for. And so we're going to be looking at a display of God's attributes. But let's, not, let's make no mistake, the reason God here is displaying his attributes is not just so that he can flex. He is specifically doing this so that his people, who he tells to be comforted and to trust in him, that they can see that it is wise and good and reasonable to trust in the Lord God of Israel. All right, our first point is this. Wait for the Lord because he is strong, wise, and sovereign. Let's read Isaiah 40, verse 12, where we left off. We're going to read 12 to the end of the chapter. Isaiah 40, verse 12, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth within a measure and weighed the balance, the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance or who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel, whom did he consult and who made him understand, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with him? An idol. a craftsman cast it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold. He casts it for, uh, for its silver chain and casts for its silver chains. For he, he, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understand from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely as are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. And when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me? Thus far, God's word. Wait for the Lord because he is strong, wise, and sovereign. I want you to see in the first three verses here, 12, 13 to 14. Can you see this ink- these, these, these incredibly vast things? Incredibly vast things, and he has intricate knowledge of them. You see these things? He's describing the universe. Who else has measured the waters? He's talking about the oceans and the lakes. He's talking about the seas and the rivers and the ponds. Who else has measured them in the hall of his hand? He's talking about measuring the dust of the earth and the mountains and the hills. These are incredibly vast things. Many of you have traveled pretty far. You have not seen, there's not one of us who's been to every single mountain. You couldn't list all the mountains or all the hills or all the valleys. You have seen a lot of dust, depending on how well you keep your house. You've seen a lot of dust. You've not seen all the dust. You've maybe seen the oceans. You've not seen all the ocean. This is the Lord talking about how he knows these incredibly, 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 incredibly vast things. But did you notice how he knows them? How is he measuring these things? How would you measure an ocean? You go on Google Maps, right? And you see these things. You do some, some, um, some measurements on these things. You look from a great scale. How does the Lord measure the oceans? In his hand. He's measuring mountains. How does he measure mountains? On spice scales. How does he measure? How does he measure these things? How does he measure the heavens? He has a scene, the stars in the sky. How does the Lord measure them? A span. The Lord is measuring these things as if he's using a spice scale, the hollow of his hand, or a 30 centimeter child's ruler from school. This is how the Lord measures these things. What's his point? These are incredibly great things, and the Lord knows them in intricate detail. He's not measuring them in in, in huge, huge sums. He's measuring them to a scale, a tiny little scale. This is a finely tuned universe. The Lord is wise and he is good. How much dust is on the earth? I don't know. How were the heavens made? I don't know. How much do the mountains weigh? I don't know how much water is there. I don't know, but someone does. This universe, this world makes sense. It works. It is incredibly vast, but in order for it to work, it has to, things need to work on a microscopic, 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 microscopic level. I'm not going to embarrass myself because we have some science majors in the room. But this universe is a universe. It's not this multiverse. It's one. It's lots in, but it's unified. It is organized by one mind. Friends, this is something that is known by every single person innately. Christian or non-Christian, atheist or theist. This is something that you can know by looking at the universe. It is grand. And it is finely intricate. And the person who made it is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly wise. There is somebody much wiser than me. I once heard a comedian, I'm not going to try to tell the joke, but a comedian told this joke where he was sitting sitting on an airplane and next to him this lady was pretty nervous about the flight and she said, She's really nervous. She's like, I guess we'll never know how planes work. I guess we'll just never know. And she was assuming that nobody knew that they were just taking guesses. And they just tried different shapes of objects until one of them worked. And then he turned to her and he said, I think somebody knows. I have a feeling the pilot knows how this works. And this is how God has created the universe. You know how great and marvelous this is. You know how wise the person who made these things must be. The Lord doesn't gain knowledge. Nobody teaches him. And so when he gives you a comfort, when he says, comfort, comfort, my people, whether you're in Israel or you're in Babylon, you can trust that because everyone knows how wise he is. When I give a comfort to somebody, I might be lacking some knowledge that interferes with my ability to give that or their ability to trust me. That is not the case with God. He knows all things. And not just a vast knowledge, but a tiny, careful, detailed knowledge of all things. He doesn't just know the end from the beginning. He doesn't just know how things are going to end. He knows everything in between because he was the one who finally tuned everything. And he's the one who organizes everything and sustains it. Oh, but humans must get in the way of this. He hasn't mentioned humans yet. He's just talking about dust and and mountains and oceans. Surely humans. Humans must interfere with his plan. Israelites must be thinking. No, not in 15 to 17. And not, he's going to talk about humans. How humans don't interfere with his knowledge or his sovereignty. They're part of creation. How, what is the illustration God uses to talk about how humans might interfere with his plans and knowledge? He's got some scales. He blows the the dust off the scales. And humanity is kind of like the dust on the scales. He's not worried about them wrecking his plan. They cannot change him. They are like dust on the scales. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. Verse 16 and 17. verse, Verse 16 is an interesting one. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Humans cannot control history, they cannot manipulate God. He's saying, Take the whole land of Lebanon, known for trees. He's saying, if they took every single tree down and built a fire for an offering, for a a sacrifice, and then they took every single animal that was on the land and they offered all those things, they're still not going to be able to manipulate me or control me or force God to do something. The Israelites are going to be seeing a lot of sacrifices in Babylon. And they might be tempted to think that these things are moving that God, the God of Babylon, in order to change the universe or to change the world or to change history in some way that might interfere with God's ability to save his people. You can't put God in your debt. You can't change his mind. You can't change God's promises. Nobody else can change God's promises for you by offering a great sacrifice. There's nothing, nothing that can interfere with God's ability to save his people. Verses 18 to 20, he talks about the foolishness of idols. This is a repeated theme. The things that you end up trusting in, they need a lot of help from you. In fact, they're more needy than you. We've got to pick wood, but we've got to make sure it's wood that's not going to rot. We're worried about our God rotting. Well, we're gonna stand up this God, but we need to make sure he's like he's steady, nor stable. We need to make sure the base is heavy enough. You're worried about your God toppling over. You're more stable than your God. Why would you lean on something that is not more stable than you? Then in verse verse 21, verse 21, he talks about, about how God is. Over all of the universe. And, and then he even talks about, he talks about kings and princes and rulers. He asks, he asks his people to look up at the stars. Look up at these things. What do you see? Here's his point. He's comparing rulers with the stars in the sky. In the ancient world, and it's also very popular today, there's this sense in which the stars governed history, right? If have stars governing history. This is what the, the people would think. And so they need to sort of, they need to look at the stars and see what's going on so they can know their future. The stars don't govern history. In the same way, the people of Israel and still the people of God today might be tempted to look at the rulers and princes of the world. And think that they are in fact in charge of history and in charge and sovereign over the world and what is happening perhaps able to stop God from keeping his promises. And God, God compares the, the stars in the sky, he compares it kind of like a blanket, like a cloak or, or some sort of, a, some, some sort of a, a tarp to cover over something, like a dwelling. And he says the, the people or the, the rulers of the world are just like that. They're not controlling history. They're not controlling the world. I put them there. I'm using them to make the world a more habitable place. Who sets up kings and princes? Governments? Presidents? Prime ministers? Who sets them up? The Lord does. And he does this as tools to restrain evil. Even, even rulers who hate the Lord, he's using them simply as furniture in the house to make it more habitable they are not really in control. God is using them to govern the world. I love his illustration of the rarity of rulers. The rarity of rulers. You know, there's, there's not many of them. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither, the tempest carries them off like stubble. We're tempted to look at the rulers of the world, maybe the, 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 uh, the tycoons of, of industry or the economy, or maybe, maybe presidents or prime ministers or kings or dictators. And we're, we're tempted to think of them as incredibly strong, powerful things because they're so rare. And God's like, you got to look at them in the exact opposite way. They're like a type of seed, a type of plant that doesn't take root very well and can't survive many things. That's why there's so few of them. When I blow, they all fall away. Don't be afraid of powerful people. This is what God is saying. He is showing how much different he is, how wise he is, and how everything that we we, we tend to fear He is sovereign over those things. Now, for what purpose does he direct the universe? He's flexing his powerful muscles of his wisdom. Why does he want us to see how wise he is? We see that in verses 27 to 31. How does he do this? For the good of his redeemed people. His people are called those who wait for him. Those who wait for the Lord. Now, what does it mean to wait? Well, wait is essentially like a, a theological synonym for the word trust, perhaps even the word faith. He's made promises of salvation. And some, of, some others might say, hey, you, you just stop waiting for the Lord to save you. Stop waiting for the Lord to keep his promises. We follow us now, and you won't have to wait for the Lord. We can see that this is particularly the case for Israel when they were in, in exile. They were in a land where the worship of the Lord would have been a very shameful thing. Think about, think about Daniel, right? Where the worship of the Lord would have been a very shameful thing. And you, we have this longing in ourselves not to be shamed, but to enjoy glory. And brothers and sisters, this isn't a wicked, this isn't a wicked desire to want glory. Now there's wicked desires for glory to be sure. But this idea that we don't want to be humiliated. We don't want to be shamed for who we are and who we belong to. We want to enjoy glory. And God is saying that is coming. Are you willing to wait for it? For the people of Israel in Babylon, that meant that there was a temptation to turn away from the worship of the Lord God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to turn to the gods of Babylon So, they wouldn't feel publicly shamed for belonging to a quote unquote shameful God. He says, Wait for me. My salvation is coming. I will restore you from captivity. The word wait is used quite a bit in Scripture to describe the faith of us here as we live in exile. We're not in the new heavens and earth yet. So, we wait in captivity. We often have to wait for that glory that is, that will be ours. In Galatians 5, it talks about waiting for the hope of righteousness. Waiting for justice to be done until the Lord returns. We want to get vengeance, perhaps, on people who have harmed us. And so we might be tempted to sin in order to do that, and the Lord says, wait for that. You might be in a relationship that is quite painful for you where the person is not quite loving you or giving you what you think would be good to have. Maybe even they're disobeying God in that. And you might be tempted to to be very aggressive and say, no, I'm gonna get what I need rather than simply being patient and just waiting for the Lord. Even if I never get this from this person, I will still be okay because I can wait for the Lord who will renew me. In Revelation, this idea of waiting is compared to a bride waiting for her husband. When other men will come and say, no, no, you don't have to wait for him. Come come to me. I'll take care of you now. I'll I'll welcome you into my household now. I will give you what you need now. I will honor you now. In the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus speaks to his bride, the church, and saying, do not do that. Wait for me. Wait for me me. Did you notice he talks about running and walking? And running in scripture is often compared to these difficult or extraordinary challenges of life. And God promises to give his people strength for those things. Walking is often in scripture compared to the ordinary things of life. Things that might become, might seem as boring, too ordinary to matter. Just the ordinary life of a a son or a daughter of God, taking up your responsibilities joyfully, even the ones that seem boring, and God will give you strength to do those things. Ultimately, what waiting for the Lord is means to the people of God is that we do not try to attain our own salvation. We wait for God to save us. We might be tempted to justify ourselves or prove to God how worthy we are of salvation, how worthy we are of saving. And he says, that is foolish. I will save you. You cannot save yourself. I will send myself. I will send my son to save you. So we are told to wait for the Lord because he is sovereign and powerful over all things. Our second point is this. We're going to look at the foolish alternative to waiting for the sovereign Lord. And here we're going to see a typical pattern of pagan mankind in the face of a, a moving history. History that looks like things are happening. It's moving toward a certain goal. And how, how, how pagan mankind typically responds to these things. Let's look at the first, four ver- uh, first seven verses sorry, of uh, chapter 41. Isaiah 41 verse 1 to 7. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength, let them approach, let them then uh, let them speak. Let us draw together near, or near, draw near for judgment. Who stirred up the one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword. He uh, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his brother and says to his, bro- his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the, the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer with uh, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. stop there here we see kind of like this court case right assembled together we're going to talk about these things this international tribunal and God talks about how the nations typically respond to the movement of the world when major events start happening and they see it marching toward some sort of an end in the example the example that is given here is the Lord stirring up somebody from the east This is stirring up an empire. An emperor is coming and at every step, this guy just keeps conquering and conquering. It looks like he doesn't even have to try. And the nations who are in the face of that are are thinking he's never been able to be stopped. Babylon can't be stopped. Well, what's going to happen to us? And we see that the world is not static. It is not unchanging and we're not controlling it. We see things happening. We see see wars, and we see rumors of wars, and we see people, strong men, taking more and more power and more and more control, and and we realize that it looks like there's some plans afoot. Empires rise and fall. Nations, worldviews, cultures, and economy. And what is the typical response to this? Not to turn to the Lord, who is clearly Lord of history, The one who made the heavens and the earth. The one who numbers all the stars and knows them by name. The one who measures the waters with tiny little instruments. Not to turn to him and say, you are sovereign over history. I'm going to trust in you. No, what do they do? They get together. Everyone helps his neighbor. They turn to their brother. We're going to make a God and we're going to figure this out. And they're helping with the soldering and they're bringing the gold. and And they're saying at the end of it, Right? Saying of the soldering, it is good. When in Genesis did you hear those words spoken so clearly? And so, uh, this is the Lord saying this of his own creation. The end of every day. What does he say? It is good. And see here we see the nations are sort of like acting like they are God. And they create a God. God. And of course, they got to make sure they have st- strong nails so he doesn't fall down. But they strengthen themselves by this, sort of, this idea of strength in numbers because they're all saying it. There's some, you can imagine somebody tr- looking at an idol and looking at it sort of wobbly and it needs strong nails and he's maybe tempted not to trust in it. And we're like, no, it's good, it's good! And everybody's yelling, it's good, it's good! Everybody's it's trusting, it's good, it's good, it's good! And it's kind of like you're encouraged not to look at the truth of the matter because everybody else is saying, no, it's good, just trust us, it's good. And we see this in our day with, with worldviews as they rise and fall. There. these opposing views to who, who God is and what is good and what is what is bad. One of my, I think one of my favorite Disney stories is The Emperor's New Clothes, where the emperor is fooled into thinking that he has these very good tailors who can make him a suit out of gold pure gold and it is the finest suit ever but it is invisible and but only wise people can see it and if you can't see it then you're not wise and so he is fooled into thinking this because of his pride and so these men accumulate so much gold and they're pretending to turn it into clothes and The emperor doesn't want to admit that he can't see it because, well, that would mean that he's not wise. And so all of his servants follow suit. Yes, it's the most beautiful thing in the world and nobody can see it, but nobody admits that they can't see it because they don't want to admit that they are not wise. And so the story ends with the emperor wearing this, he's naked, wearing this suit of gold, which is invisible because it's not there and parading around the empire with it. And then there's a kid at the parade who says, the emperor has no clothes. This is the sense in which humanity is foolish in their collective fighting against the truth of who God is. And Israel is told in the middle of this, don't be fooled. Don't turn to things that are made, things that have been invented, things that have not, been, not existed even longer than your own life. You're making this thing. Instead, trust in the living God. Number three, the care and victory which God performs for the worm he chose as his friend. We'll see this in verses 8 to 20. Now he's comparing how the world responds to major events and instability in, in world history. Empires rising or economies falling or nations gaining power. Or worldviews changing, revolutions. How should Israel think about these things? Should we get an idol to control this? Should we trust humanity to fight back together and we're all patting each other on the back? We'll do this. How should Israel respond? What should they know about what's actually happening? Isaiah 41, 8-20. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I for I am with you. And be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strike against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord, your God, hold you; hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. New, sharp, and heaving teeth, you shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy shall seek water, when there's none, and their tongue is parched with them, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare On the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys, I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. And I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. That they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done it. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Thus far, God's word. How does God use that? knowledge and power and sovereignty over all things we already see that he uses it he's using he's going to strengthen his people those who wait for him but we get even finer detail of how he's going to do that how does he use control his knowledge and control of history how he is moving things around oh to care for abraham's offspring who are abraham's offspring We read in Galatians that Abraham ultimately only had one singular heir, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who belongs to the heir? Who's united to him? Who's part of the body of that heir? The Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have faith in him. Those who trust in the Messiah are Abraham's heirs. And God says, I use my sovereignty over all things, which is unquestioned. The God of the universe is clearly in control over all things. You can't deny this. And he's saying, I use this to care for my friend, Abraham. Abraham's offspring. Now he uses some pretty lovely words, a lovely word to describe Abraham, doesn't he? My friend. That's a beautiful, beautiful word. That's a bit of an honoring word, isn't it? He also uses the word servant or slave. And then he also uses worm. Not a, not a very complimentary word. Not norm, Normally when somebody says you're kind of a worm, they're not usually complimenting you. Although maybe in some cultures they are just, it's not, I'm not familiar with it. Why would the Lord remind Israel or the people of God, his covenant people, the children of Abraham? Why would he, why would he remind us and call us a worm? God, a chapter beforehand, you were saying, comfort, comfort my people. Why are you now calling us a worm? There's two reasons the Lord does this. The first is to humble us. He's not taking care of us because we are strong, because we are glorious. There's not much things less glorious than a worm. We're not strong. We're not powerful. We're not holy. We're not better than other people. We are, God chose us when we were worms. That's humbling. The Israelites were not to think that God was going to take care of them with his sovereign might and power because they're better than the Babylonians. But it's also a comfort that the Lord uses to call them a worm. Well, how could that be a comfort? If the Lord chose you, if the Lord died for your sins when you were a wicked, wretched enemy of his, whose heart hated him more than anything else, if that is when he chose you, do you think you can trust him to be faithful to you? When you realize how weak you are in comparison to other people, perhaps, when you remember that the Lord chose you, when, you, when the Lord chose you, you... You were as a worm, and he still chose you, and he set his affection on you, and he even gave his son to die for your sins. Then, you being, you realizing how weak you are, can't interfere with your confidence in God. There's probably a day or two when an Israelite man who did trust in the Lord sinned against his wife or his children, and he, you know, walks out and he sees a Babylonian neighbor being kind to his wife and children and thinking, oh boy. No, I didn't choose you because you were righteous. I'm not going to be faithful to you because you are righteous. This allows us, this, uh, the reminder that God, that God chooses a worm to be his friend of course makes us humble, but it also increases our confidence in him. That his faithfulness to us has nothing at all to do with how Good and powerful we are. He chose us when we were a worm. And so the song could be Jesus, friend of sinners. It could be Jesus, friend of earthworms. What does he promise these people, these lowly servants? He promises them in 14 to 16 victory over enemies. Did you see this? He compares them to a threshing sledge, and he's they're gonna they're gonna knock down everything and make it smooth. He's going to bring justice and judgment to their enemies. All the nations are going to be flattened by Israel, his servant. A very wicked man might walk up to a a lowly servant and kick him. But that wicked man, as wicked as he is, if he sees that that servant is, is a dear friend of an all-powerful, mighty king might think twice. And this is what God is saying about Israel. You might be a worm, but you're my worm. You might be a servant, a lowly servant, but you're my friend. Even greater still, we see that Christ, he unites us to himself as his own body, the way a husband unites to a wife You're not simply somebody I'm friends with. I and you are one flesh. And we see this when Paul was persecuting the church before he became a Christian. The Lord Jesus knocks him off his ride and he terrifies him by saying, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That is my church. That is my bride. I consider her own pain as mine. In fact, the Lord Jesus considered her sin as if it were his own and so the lord says don't worry about justice it will be mine i will repay and so the lord will one day punish those who are the enemies of god's church and it says it says israel his servant is going to do this but as we're going to see later on the Lord is going to send a Messiah who can act on behalf of his whole people. And it count as if they did that. And so it's not like the church now needs to go punish the enemies of God. No, no. We have a Messiah who will judge the living and the dead. And he is our head and he does it instead of us, on behalf of us. But there's another way in which the, the church can participate in the conquering of the nations or people of the nations. And that is the proclaiming of the gospel. And every single time that the nation, every single time that the gospel is proclaimed to people who don't know him, and a person believes that person is one for the Lord, that person has surrendered, has been conquered, and been added to the people of God. He also talks about care in the desert in verse 17 to 20. And it seems like he's bringing up the whole Exodus wilderness theme again, where the Lord cared for them miraculously in the desert. As you look at this passage, 17 to 20, as you look at it, it seems like it has this double meaning. This care for the people as they're in the wilderness, that he will care for them while they're suffering. But he also seems to be talking about that there will be a day when there is no suffering. As he cared for Israel in the wilderness, miraculously, he cared for them. Water from a rock, manna from heaven, quail coming. The Lord providing for them miraculously when they had no land, where they were exiles. But then also a day, there will be a day when they're not in the wilderness anymore. The wilderness will disappear. And so there's that double meaning here. First of all, that the Lord will care for his church while we are waiting for him to return. In the midst of suffering, he will give us all that we need. And he will use his sovereignty over nations and kings and economies and and the weather in order to care for his dear church. But also there is the promise that there will be a day in which there will be no suffering. Where the entire desert will turn into a lush garden. Where the entire world fulfills its purpose to bless the people whom God loves. And you won't have to struggle with it. It'll just willingly give up. Yes, we love to serve the Lord's people and to provide for their needs. This is how the earth will respond one day. And, Lord, uh, and, and people, when the Lord returns, this is exactly what he will do to restore the earth. That the, the earth will one day treat us not as we deserve. But as the Lord Jesus Christ, our head deserves, it will serve him and it will, he, the Lord will use the world to care for us perfectly. Lastly, we have our fourth point, good news of Zion's sovereign God or abomination of idolatry. And we'll finish off the chapter here. Verse 21 to the end. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them Uh, Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun and, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it. None who proclaimed. None who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is none. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Thus far, God's word. But you see here, the Lord is essentially closing his case. He's closing his case to Israel and all the nations who are looking on. In hidden or buried in the middle of all this idol worship and the foolishness of idolatry, you see verse twenty-seven. You hear the gospel good news, gospel. But it is buried in the midst of this case that the Lord has against the alternative, which the Lord calls the abomination of idolatry. He closes his case and he says, who else can tell the end from the beginning? These people that you are trusting in, these worldviews, these these people who will determine what is morally right and wrong, these religions or spiritualities, which of them, which of them told you what happened before it would happen?" Which of them existed thousands of years beforehand? Which of them clearly created the universe? None of them. None of them was able to predict future, but I, the Lord God, was able to do that. I was the one. I alone am the one who gives the gospel. And here he says, there's two things that all nations, all religions, all worldviews, apart from the Lord, two ways in which they differ from the gospel of the Lord Jesus, from Israel's God. First of all, they've never been able to prove that they're sovereign over history. They might, might have good ideas and say, I, God talked to me in a cave and we should do this, but they've never been able to prove that they're sovereign over history. They've never been able to prove that, and the Lord God over and over and over again brings a prophecy, fulfills it, brings a prophecy, fulfills it, brings a prophecy, and fulfills it. So that's the first way. They've never been able to demonstrate that they are sovereign over history. Where were you yesterday? How come you didn't say these things were going to happen? This is what God is saying. And the second thing is they don't even attempt to bring good news or gospel. Good news or gospel means the announcement of news, your salvation as news. Something not that you have done or will do, Not a philosophy, not a law, but something that God did instead of you. Dear friends, no other religion even claims to offer that. Not one single religion claims that God himself saved you. That he chose people who are worms and saves them. He chose people that were wicked enemies and have no hope of doing anything but being wicked enemies and he saves them. No other religion claims that God kept the law instead of you. No other religion claims that God was damned instead of you. No other religion even claims to give good news. And this is why he calls idolatry or godlessness. He calls it worse than nothing. Because we are in a privileged position as humans to be able to look at, huma- to look at the universe, to look at creation, and know there is a God. In a more privileged position than mountains and valleys and oceans and goats and worms. Which means that when we deny his existence and do not trust in him, it's worse than nothing. So dear friends, do not be tempted by the idolatry that is around you. You, you might be able to get more glory in this world by rejecting the Lord. You could go on Twitter this afternoon and, sing, and, and get a whole lot of sympathy from people and saying, I was raised to believe the God of the Bible and that, and that he has designed the world and he's sovereign over it and that he is only good and that we're all sinners and that we're all worms and that he loved us enough to give us his son to die for our sins. I was raised to believe that, but now I'm free. And you get all kinds of sympathy. And people would glory you. And that persecution that you kind of feel would be relieved off of you. Oh, but how foolish you would be not to wait for the Lord. Because the future of a Christian is to enjoy not the glory that you deserve, but the glory that your head deserves. Because he already endured the shame that you deserve on the cross. How glorious would it be to live in the new heavens and earth with the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ deserves. Dear church, wait for Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we rejoice that You are not, You don't just call us to blind faith, that You are eager to give our weak and frail souls evidence you draw our eyes up to heavens and uh, the heavens and, and consider the one who made those things and, and realize that we can trust you. Lord, I pray that you would renew our strength, not the strength we need to lift hard things or to run far distances, but the strength to wait for you, and to look forward to your return to trust in you and you alone. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to endure, endure suffering and shame while we wait for the glorious return of the Lord Jesus. Remind us of how sweet it will be. Remind us of how good your grace is. Remind us of how gracious you have been to us, that you chose us while we were enemies and that you care for us not as we deserve, but the way that the Lord Jesus does. Would I pray that you would help us to wait for his return? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.